Welcome to episode five of A Year in a Day. I'm your host, Jamie Davis. In episode four, I discuss the topic of gray divorce and the unique issues facing divorcing couples over age 50 with Holly Modasser, Senior Vice President and Managing Partner of Stearns Financial Group's Triangle Office. In this episode, I will be speaking with fellow family law attorney and parenting coordinator, Katie King. Katie is a board-certified family law specialist and partner with Wake Family Law Group in Raleigh. Katie is also certified by the North Carolina Dispute Resolution Commission as a family financial mediator, and she has been certified as a parenting coordinator in high-conflict custody cases since 2008. Katie and I have gotten to know each other over the years as opposing counsel in each other's cases, and we both attend a peer discussion group for parenting coordinators in Wake County. Welcome, Katie. Thanks, Jamie. So, Katie, what is a parenting coordinator? A parenting coordinator is defined by statute as a neutral person who meets the qualifications under the statute to help parents work out high-conflict divorce issues. So, basically, the statute says that a parent coordinator, I usually refer to them as a PC. Um, So, when I talk about PC, I'm talking about parenting coordinator Um, A PC will have certain qualifications. A PC has to be a lawyer, a doctor, someone with a degree in psychology, social work, counseling, medicine, or something like that. And a PC has gone through a certain level of training related to developmental stages of children, dynamics of high-conflict families, divorce, problem-solving, mediation, and legal issues. And so with that training, a PC is appointed to help these high-conflict families with these issues. And so what does the PC do? The PC does whatever the judge um, asks the PC to do. And so that can be defined by the PC appointment order. But where you have a high-conflict divorce family, the PC is there to basically keep the parents from going to court all the time. So to help manage the day-to-day logistics that the court just doesn't have the resources to deal with. What are a few examples of things that a PC can decide? When a PC is appointed, the judge will issue what's called a PC appointment order. And that order will set out, there's in Wake County, at least there's check boxes. And those boxes will list anything that the judge wants the PC to decide. So, for example, it could be health care decisions. It could be transportation and exchanges. It could be appearance, grooming issues. It could be extracurricular activities, Uh, participation and visitation by significant others. So there's a whole laundry list. And then a judge can also appoint a PC to deal with specific issues that aren't in those checkboxes. So if the parents have an issue coming up with school selection, for example, the judge could allow the PC to make that decision. Or maybe the parents have an issue with passports or travel or just something unique. I had a case where I had the authority to resolve issues relating to what type of movies were appropriate for the children to watch and what types of video games the children could play. So it really just depends on that specific family and what they need or what the judge thinks they need. So in that case, were the parents arguing over, I guess, the ratings on the video games and the movies? Was that the issue? Exactly. And in these high conflict cases, issues that parents in kind of your average custody case, if there is one, issues that wouldn't 
be a problem in those cases where you've got these high conflict dynamics, they can't agree on even the most basic things. And so particularly when you've got parents who just have different standards and different beliefs and they don't like each other and are fighting, then sometimes PCs have to get involved to decide what are really relatively in the grand scheme of things, mundane issues. Yeah. And my experience dealing with PC cases, because I've done a few of these in my day as well. Because we did our training together back in 2008. Yeah. Um, It also seems that one of the issues is that maybe during the marriage, one parent or the other was the parent who primarily just made decisions for the kids. Maybe it was always mom that signed the child up for soccer and basketball or whatever else it was that she wanted the child to do. And now that the parents are separated, she or he is having a really hard time actually communicating with the other parent about those decisions. Have you found that as well? I have. And the other dynamic I think is at work is this idea that if the other parent who one parent maybe holds in a very high level of disdain, if that parent endorses an idea, it has to be a bad idea. Even if otherwise it would be a good idea, it's this idea that it's this zero-sum game, that if the other parent wants it to be a certain way, that that it must be a really bad idea. So you're already dealing with people who are having a hard time with each other as individuals, and then you're asking them, in most of these cases, to, to make decisions together. And a lot of times they just simply can't do that. That's a really good point. Is there anything a PC can't do? Well, beyond, like I said, in Wake County, you know, we have the order that lists the check boxes. And so sometimes a family will come in and they'll have an issue relating to the holidays. And if that box is not checked in my PC appointment order, even if there's legitimately a dispute about the holidays, I can't make a decision about that. So I would say at the outset, anything that I don't specifically have the authority to do in the check boxes. And then a couple other things, I can't do anything to do with financial issues, which is really awkward because there's a lot of times that families have issues like extracurriculars or private school where my decision is going to have a financial impact right. and yet I can't do anything about that financial impact. There's so much crossover, you there know. There is. There is. And and I don't know the answer to that how to resolve that other than there are times where if the parents will agree for you to make that decision, I believe the PC has the authority if the parents agree to to make a financial decision. Um, But most of the time, they're not going to agree because why would they? Why would they? Exactly. One person is going to be impacted. So anything that I don't have the authority to do under checkboxes, anything that I don't have um, that involves a financial impact. And then the third category would be if there is um, something that's already covered by the court order. So I don't have the authority to change the party's court order in any kind of significant way. So when I get a PC case, they already have a custody order. It may be a temporary order. It may be a permanent order. And my job is to help the family implement that order and then fill in gaps where something isn't specifically set out. So like I said, if they have a holiday schedule, even if I have that box checked to deal with holiday schedule, I can't change their holiday schedule unless it's a tweak. So for example, maybe 
dad is flying internationally and because of the cost of plane tickets, he needs to get back in town at eight o'clock and he's supposed to exchange at six. Well, that would be an example of I'm not making a significant change to the custody order, but that would be the thing that in your average custody case, the parents could work together and um, save a lot of money and, and avoid that conflict. But in these PC cases, that may be a big dispute. And so a, a PC has the authority to make those little changes that don't affect the basic time sharing arrangement and fill in the gaps um, where the order might not provide for something. On, on the other hand, there may be times where, let's say they have a holiday schedule and it doesn't have anything about Halloween. I've had this issue come up. And for whatever reason, when they were negotiating that order, maybe three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, nobody cared about Halloween, but now Halloween is an issue. I can't go back and create a Halloween schedule where there wasn't one. I right. leave that up to, there's really good attorneys who are involved in drafting these orders. And the way I look at it is if these attorneys, if Halloween was a big issue, it, it should have been covered when the order was either negotiated or if the judge didn't think to put Halloween in for whatever reason, I'm going to guess that there was a good reason and I can't change that. And so if there is something like that, like let's pretend that folks all of a sudden think Halloween is really important and they want it included. What do they do there if their parent coordinator can't make the decision? If they can agree, then I can make the decision. So, but again, usually they're not going to agree because Halloween's an issue for one parent. And so why would the other parent, if the alternative is there's not going to be any Halloween schedule, then the parent who either already had Halloween that year or doesn't care about Halloween, they're not going to agree for me to make that scheduling change. But if they can agree, then I believe I have the authority to make that decision. And sometimes what we do in that situation is, I will work with the parents' attorneys and we'll do a quick consent order, for example, another order that just says this is what they've agreed to for Halloween, and it becomes a modification of that order. And that's something the attorneys can help with. And if it's something that just isn't in there and nobody agrees for me to handle the issue, it's either just not going to get addressed or if it's a big enough issue, which hopefully Halloween would never be a big enough issue to go back to court on, they could file a motion to modify it if there's other significant reasons for changes. But um, typically by the time people get to that point, there are a lot of problems with the order, not just one issue like that. You mentioned earlier that both lawyers and therapists can become parenting coordinators. Are there reasons why a person may prefer to have one over the other as the PC in their case? I think it really depends on the family and, and what the family needs. I know as an attorney, when I'm not acting as a PC, in most cases, I want a lawyer PC. And and that's partially because I think in many cases, not that there's not excellent mental health professionals as PC, but in most cases, a lawyer, because most of us are also dealing with these high conflict cases as attorneys and as professionals in an advocacy role, sometimes a lawyer, in my opinion, is better able just to address the issue head on without feeling like our role is to somehow fix the family or um, not that mental health professionals can be in a therapeutic relationship as PCs, but I, I don't try to 
make the people I work with better people. I just try to help them manage their parental relationship so that there can be peace for their kids. But if there are families that have significant mental health issues or there's some other reason that a mental health professional needs to be involved, then then it could be a good fit in those cases. Yeah, I agree. I do think it is very case specific as to what kind of person you may want to be the PC for your particular family. I know that, at least in my experience, school choice or selection seems to be a biggie. Um, and that a lot of times parents are willing to agree for that issue to get kicked to the PC. Have you found that as well? I have, um, especially when you've got a young child and you haven't even dealt with kindergarten yet and there's going to be a big dispute. A lot of times with 50-50 parents, for example, the child has two great options that in terms of school choice. And so it's not like in a primary custody situation where it may make more sense for the child to go to the school um, that is the base school for whatever the address is that the primary parent is living at. So I have a lot of judges appoint a PC in that role to make school decisions. And a lot of that is too, you know, Jamie, that with our court system, it can take months and months to get a court date. So a lot of times there's just simply not the time to go to court and ask the judge to make that decision. Right. By the time you get to your hearing, the the deadline is passed and whatever your choice was may be gone. That's right. And I think a lot of times in picking the PC to go back to what we were just talking about, When you're looking at a PC, I know when I'm in an attorney role and not as a PC role, a lot of times I'm looking for a PC that I might think has a particular qualification for this particular family, not just in the context of mental health professional versus lawyer, but maybe I want a PC who has small children. I know I get a lot of people who want to use me as a PC because they know I have both the younger child and and a school-age child. And so a lot of those logistics that parents are dealing with, they feel like I might be particularly in tune to. And I do the same thing when I'm picking a PC. I agree with you. I might want someone who is a dad. I might want someone who's a mom with young children or, you know, I, there's a lot of different reasons. And you're also wanting someone that your family, um, that you're trying to find a PC that they will connect with because it's a very difficult role and it's an uncomfortable role for families. And you want someone that at the outset, there can be some sort of at least positive connection. Right. I think odds are good that at one point or another, one or both of the parents is going to disagree with whatever decision you make as a PC. Um, And if they can at least connect with you on some sort of more basic personal level, hey, we're both parents or hey, we both have kids in elementary school, I think that helps them sometimes swallow what might otherwise be a more difficult PC decision. Well, and I feel like in some PC relationships or in a lot of PC relationships, I'm in some ways the the third awkward parent in the situation. And so I want the families I work with to know that I'm going to give them practical advice, that I'm a working parent, that I have a young child and an older child, And I want to make good practical decisions for them because they already have lawyers in their life. And even though I'm a lawyer, when I'm in their life, I'm acting as their neutral. I'm an impartial person and I want them to know I'm going to give them practical, practical advice and give them practical direction as they do things. But you're right that at any given time, when I make a PC decision, if there's a dispute, someone is not going to like the decision I make. And often 
neither of them is going to like right. the decision I make. And I jokingly tell my PC families that if you guys continuously agree that you don't like what I'm doing, guess what? The better option is that you make decisions for, for your family yourself as the parents and you not have to have a PC make those decisions. So that's kind of a unintended yet positive consequence of the PC process is sometimes the parents dislike the decision so much and dislike allocating that authority to a third party, which I don't blame them in an ideal situation. They don't have to have that third party in, in their parental relationship, but if they can agree that, Hey, we can do a better job making these decisions ourselves. That's great. That's a successful outcome. This is one of those areas that as attorneys, we want to put ourselves out of business. I don't want to have a PC family that I have to be with for years. My goal is that I get appointed for a one-year term, and at the end of it, they don't need me anymore. And that's a good outcome, strangely enough. Right. Yeah. I mean, part of the goal of being a PC is to, at the very least, help these folks with their communication skills and equip them with some of the tools that maybe they can use to start trying to resolve some of these issues on their own. I know a very basic one is how do you respond to the other party's email? If they send you an email, you know, as a parent, not as a PC, but if one parent sends the other parent an email with two or three different ideas or questions or points or whatever they are, what is the best way for that parent to respond to it? Well, it's point by point, right? Maybe you number those points. Maybe if you have nothing else to add to it, you just say, okay, so that the person knows that you received the email, you read the email, and you're acknowledging that you're okay with whatever the idea is. Um, If there is somebody out there listening to this who is involved in a custody dispute and they think they could benefit from a PC, how do they go about getting one appointed in their case? Well, first they have to have a custody order or they have to be in, in the custody litigation process. And when they're in the custody litigation process, the statute um, for parent coordinators in North Carolina says that a judge can appoint a PC at any point in a custody proceeding. So either the parents already have a custody order or maybe they're going in front of the court for the first time, they may ask the judge for the appointment of a PC. And that's in the judge's discretion to do that. The judge may also on his or her own motion, appoint a PC in a case, regardless of if anyone asks for one. And then sometimes parents on their own together will consent that they need a PC. And sometimes we'll see that come up. Maybe they have an order that just hasn't been working. Maybe there's some contempt or enforcement issues and they feel like, hey, we really need a PC to to help us work through these issues. So there's various situations where you can get a PC, but it all starts with there has to either be a custody order that's getting ready to get entered or you already have a custody order. There are times it's a little bit unusual, um, and you and I were talking about this not too long ago, about what if you don't have a custody order? Right. Well, the good news is if you don't have a custody order, hopefully you're not so high conflict that you had to go to court and get one. Maybe you resolved your issues by a separation agreement or some sort of Con, um, contract relationship parenting plan. But if you don't have a court order and you're not going to get a court order appointing a PC, there's certainly no reason that parents can't 
create almost a contractual relationship with a PC. It's a little bit different because it's not controlled by statute, but I have a couple families I work with that they've essentially made me the arbitrator, which would be a, a decision maker in their custody conflicts. And they've created by contract the role of a PC in their private agreement versus having the court appoint me as a PC. So it's a little bit unusual, but it works for these families. And again, the goal is to have a decision maker because even in the best custody situations, there are going to be times where there's conflict over school choice or communication or any of these issues that sometimes parents just can't come together on. And really some of the more mundane issues seem to be the biggest problems. Like, where do we drop the kids off? Are we going to meet at somebody's house? Are we going to drop them off at a store? What time are we going to exchange the children? What happens if somebody is 15 minutes late? How do we deal with that? It really does seem to be a lot of these very logistical small issues that can be giant for these families that are embroiled in the conflict. I also think it's really important for folks to know that if they do not consent to having a PC, that they have to show the court when they ask for a PC that they both have the ability to pay the PC's fees Um, because this is not a free service. So if you're going to have a PC, you've got to be able to show the court, hey, not only are we high conflict, but we can also afford um, the PC's fees. So along those lines, in your experience, how much does a PC generally cost? So most of the time, when an attorney is acting as a PC, that attorney is going to charge a lower hourly rate than his or her normal lawyer rate. So when I'm acting as a PC, I'm charging almost $100 less than I am when I'm acting as an attorney. And part of that is because you want it to be accessible for people. Right. You want It's kind of like when we're acting as mediators, we charge less as mediators than if we're acting as the attorney advocate. So you want to make it more affordable. It's still certainly an expensive process. But what I have found is that most PCs are going to be charging less than a normal hourly rate. And when a PC receives an appointment, the judge is going to say how the fees are going to be split. So most families, the judge is going to say they're going to be 50-50, that all of my fees will be divided. But you've got families where you might have one parent who makes significantly more. I've had families where they divide them 80-20, 60-40. I've never had a family that was 100% one parent paying. And I, I would certainly discourage against having that situation because it really gives the other parent no incentive whatsoever to not abuse the process. Right. I think sometimes with the 50-50, at least both parents are equally financially invested in the process. But the judge does have to find that that they have the ability to pay um, or the parties have to agree how they're going to split those fees. Well, in some cases, it has seemed most fair to me that if both parents were working, that maybe they shared the PC fee in proportion to their incomes. You know, if one parent was making 60% of the income, the family income, and the other parent was making 40, maybe that's how they pay for their PC. That way, they both have some skin in the game, but it's also fair to both of them and not an undue burden. Um, I also really like the fact that a parent coordinator can actually reallocate the fee. That's right. If one of the parents is abusing the process, the PC can say... Nope, parent, you're paying 100% of the fees for whatever issue you just brought up because it was a frivolous issue and we really shouldn't be talking about that. So I think that's a really good way to prevent 
folks from abusing it. That's right. And I think that once they know that, hey, if I keep bringing these issues up or if I'm the one who's sending 90% of the PC emails, I'm going to get tagged with that bill when it comes out or, or portion of it. I always tell the families I work with that at the outset, and it's actually in the PC appointment order as well, that your fees are supposed to be divided whatever the court has decided or they've agreed, but I have the authority to allocate them separately, but I'm going to give you a heads up when I'm going to do that. So there's not going to be a surprise. Usually I'll say something like, if I continue to see this issue come up, you're going to get a bill that's a hundred percent. Thankfully it doesn't happen that often, but it is nice that when you do have someone abusing the process, that there is some relief for the other parent. Um, One of the things you were talking about earlier, Jamie, about communication and kind of these mundane things, emails, I would say communication is probably 75% of my cases I'm dealing with communication. And a lot of that is just how do we send an email to each other? And you know about there's a program called Our Family Wizard that family lawyers use and recommend pretty frequently and our judges really like it. And the whole idea of Our Family Wizard is to create essentially this um, online forum for the parents that documents when an email was sent, when it was read, there's a family calendar, there's all of these ways to coordinate communication. And I would say probably half of my PC families, if the judge hasn't already ordered them to use our family wizard, I asked them to use it because one of the benefits of it is it can give the PC, we can have what's called professional access where we can go in there and review the communications and just make sure the communications are appropriate. Sometimes the parents behave a little bit better if they know that their PC can be in their monitoring email. And it's certainly a better alternative to having to screen all the emails. I Back in the day, I had families that I worked with where I had to essentially edit all of their emails. And that's just too expensive for the parents to deal with. And because the goal is that our relationship is not long-term, I can't be filtering them all the time. doesn't mean there's not times where I do have to filter them, but at the outset, I try to create a forum for them to communicate more practically and appropriately and then create systems. So like you talked about numbering things, bullet points. I've had some professionals say, if you're writing in paragraphs, you're writing too much to the other parent, just short and sweet, factual, not editorial, something that's easy to respond to and and easy to review. But streamlining communication is a huge issue with these families. Right. I mean, no matter how many times their lawyers have told them not to put anything in writing to the other parent that they would be ashamed to read out loud in court, they're going to do it anyway. And they're going to do it anyway because they're a high conflict family and they don't know how to communicate with each other very well. And so I agree with you, Katie. Our Family Wizard is a great program. Um, I also think it's good because it helps with accountability in terms of getting rid of the excuse that I didn't get it. I didn't get your email. Well, all of these have read receipts and you know when they've been viewed and opened and sent. And so it takes away another one of those excuses that's not really a valid excuse. And um, I think it can be really helpful for these families. Well, ultimately, PC work, the whole point of it is to keep these parents from going to court and to help them have tools for having a better parenting relationship. And so anything that we can do as attorneys and in particular as PCs 
to minimize the potential for conflict, and most importantly, to have peace for the children of these families. Because at the end of the day, that's the whole point of the role, is that there be peace for these children, and that these high-conflict parents can be, um, I don't want to use the word managed, but that they can we can work with them to come up with ways that their children are not going to have a crazy childhood because their parents can't even send a simple email. So let's talk a little more about communication. You mentioned having professional access to the Our Family Wizard account. Um, When a PC client tells you something, is it confidential? No, and I'm glad you asked that because that's a question that comes up a lot. PC families are almost always represented by attorneys. And so they're used to having attorneys involved in their life. And they are used to having an attorney that they feel like they have privileged communications with because they do. But when I'm a PC, even though I'm an attorney, I am not the attorney for either of those parents. And so even in the statute, it sets out what kind of access the other parent can have to communications with me. So I tell the families I work with at the outset that whatever you send to me is not confidential, that it's not privileged, even though I'm an attorney, and that even though I'm not necessarily going to forward whatever they email me to the other parent, I can. And likewise, if the attorney for the other parent sends me a request for all of those emails or subpoenas my file, All of those communications are going to be fair game. And so I try to have people at the outset be really mindful of don't send me something that you don't want the other side to see. And don't send me something and tell me not to share it with the other side. Because even if I don't intend to share it because I'm using my own discretion, it doesn't mean it still can't be requested by the other attorney or subpoenaed um, by the judge. Right. I think most PCs do a really good job knowing what not to share with the other side in terms of not wanting to further inflame an already heated situation. But by the same token, you know, sometimes those communications have to be shared because that's the only way to resolve the issue. And so really the safest course of action, in my opinion, is to not send anything to your PC that you wouldn't want the other side to see anyway. Would you agree with that? Well, and that's just good advice in general. When we're acting as attorneys and not as PCs, just to, I tell parents all the time when I'm acting as the attorney, any email you send is a potential exhibit in court. Right. So don't send something that you don't want the judge in your case reading. And and that's the same thing with PC communications. One, don't send something that if the other side read it, it would be an exhibit for them um, in their case. And don't send something that if I were subpoenaed and a judge has to sign off on a PC subpoena, but if I were subpoenaed and the judge was reading that, that would make the judge think poorly of you. So just using good common sense as a parent, which really should be the case whether you have a PC or not. Absolutely. That I tell people all the time when you're in a custody case, you're living under a black cloud and you have to be a way better parent than I do, for example, in my parenting life, because nobody's trying to complain about me. I hope not in my personal life. But when you're a parent in a custody case, everything you do and everything you say is scrutinized, which is extremely, extremely stressful, but also is a good thing to remember when you're communicating. Don't send something that's going to be a bad exhibit. 
I mean, you're under a microscope. You just are. That's exactly I mean, right. The judge is being tasked with deciding what is in the best interest of your children and how you parent your children is directly related to that. And so for so long as you have involved yourself willingly or not in this process, you got to deal with it and you got to learn to live with it. And you've got to learn how to parent while being watched for a certain period of time. That's right. So something that you and I have talked about before that I think is really interesting um, is that you have an actual process for how you make a PC decision. Talk to us about that a little bit. What is your PC process? So I try to, and it goes back to the idea that I am an impartial person. And when I make a PC decision, I want the parents to understand where I came from with this decision so that they understand it. And so I kind of have a formula when I, and it's not something that it it always looks the same in every decision, but just the way I think about the decision. And the first thing that I do is I make sure when there is a PC decision that I'm making that the parents have first attempted to work it out with each other. I don't want parents coming to me and using me as an alternative to having to work with the other parent. Because again, the goal is that I am out of business as a PC for this family at the end of my term, that they don't need me. So I'm not doing them any favors by becoming a way that they can work around the other parents. So first thing I want to do in any PC decision is, have you talked to the other parent? Is there actually a dispute? Or have you just come straight to me? Maybe you know the answer that there's already going to be a dispute, but at least try to work it out with the other parent. So once I've determined that there's actually a dispute, then I want to hear from both parents on the issue. And I want to know what everyone's position is. Sometimes there might be a time where I might need to talk to someone else about the decision. Well, so let me stop you right here. So you want to hear from both parents. Does that mean a phone call, a meeting, an email? How do you get everybody's input? It it depends on the issue, honestly. Most PC work is via email, which is good and bad. It's good because it creates transparency that it's very clear what I said to everyone because sometimes these families, whether it's intentional or not, will twist my words. You know, Katie sure. said X, Y, Z, and they kind of use me sometimes as the bad guy that I'm going to somehow be mad at the other parent. But email is the is a great way because of transparency. It's not a great way because sometimes I need more information that's just too bulky to get an email. So totally depends on the issue. I'm either going to email with them about it. I'm going to have a phone call. Sometimes I'll have a meeting. Sometimes when I'm having a meeting, I will bring in both parents. And that can either, usually if I bring both parents in, I have a pretty good idea that it can be manageable, that it's not going to be this big conflict. Because again, the role is not to make things worse or to try to improve things. So it, it just totally depends on the issue, Jamie. But most of the time, it's going to be email. Okay, so you have now contacted the folks mm-hmm. to get the information. You've heard from both sides. And then what do you do? So then there may be other people I need to talk to. So a lot of PC families have other professionals that work with them. There might be therapists involved. There might be, depending on the issue, there might be a doctor involved. There may be a school that's involved. There may be a significant other that's involved. And so 
there may be times where I need to talk to a third party or multiple third parties. And in that case, the PC statute says, and the PC appointment order says, the parents will sign releases for me to talk to whoever I need to. So sometimes it's gathering more information from these third parties. Sometimes it's doing other research. If I'm doing school choice, for example, I'm going to be looking at information, the North Carolina report cards, for example. I'm going to be looking at maps to see where everything is. There's going to be a lot of collateral information. And so that first stage, once I've identified the dispute, is going to be that information gathering, getting everyone's positions, getting information. And then once I do that and I've been able to sort through everything and I make a PC decision, I'm going to send that PC decision to the parents in writing. And usually it's going to be email. Um, It might be a letter attached to an email or it might just be written right into an email. And it's going to say something like, dear mom and dad, here's the issue. Here's mom's position. Here's dad's position. Here's my authority to resolve the decision under your PC order. Because again, if I don't have the authority, I can't make a decision anyway. (laughs) And then it will explain what my decision is. And then it will usually give some sort of reason for that decision. And when I send that email, it's going to go to both parents and then I will also copy their attorneys on it. And the reason why I do that is that when I make a PC decision, the statute and the PC appointment order tell the parents that that order is binding as that decision is binding as if it's an order of the court. And so they need to comply with it unless the judge reviews it and says otherwise. So if I make a decision and one or both parents think it's just flat out wrong or that I didn't have the authority to do that, that parent can actually file a request with the assigned judge in the case and ask that judge to look at the decision. And until the judge reviews it, They have to comply, but if the judge looks at it and determines that the PC shouldn't have made that decision, the judge actually has the authority to to change and overrule my order. Because remember, the judge has the ultimate authority in, in the case as a whole. I'm not taking anything away from the court. I'm just filling in the gaps for the issues that the court just simply can't deal with and and doesn't have the resources to deal with. So what if you make a PC decision? Nobody asks the court to review it, but one of the parents still doesn't follow the decision. What happens? I think it depends on the case. There are times where if one parent doesn't do what my PC decision requires, that the other parent will have no hesitation to file for contempt. Because remember, my decision has the authority of a court order. And so a lot of times, the other parent will jump in and go ahead and file for contempt for violating the order. And then there's other times where I have the ability to file a report to the court and ask the judge to check in on this family and see what's going on. And as a result of that report to the court, the judge may issue what's called a show cause order to determine whether someone should be held in contempt. So it really just comes down to, one, if anyone's going to do anything about it, and two, who is going to do something about it? Is it going to be the parent, the other parent, or is it going to be me? And that really, a lot of times people, when they have a PC, they feel like my job is to police the order and that I'm going to always be there as someone that when dad didn't do what he was supposed to do, mom's going to send me an email and that somehow I have the ability to go make dad follow the order. And I don't. And you know how it is that 
They, they want the other parent to follow the order as the other parent should, but I'm not the custody order police. And all I can do is remind parents what their obligations are and clarify them where necessary. And then if it's appropriate, there may be times where I file a report to the court and ask the judge to check in on this family and potentially issue an order to show cause to consider whether someone should be held in contempt. In your experience, has there ever been a time when having a parent coordinator was not helpful or appropriate? I had a custody case that I tried as the attorney last year, and that was really one of the big issues in the case. And one of my law partners, I were actually talking about this in another case not too long ago about a PC can be a really good thing in the right case. When you have two parents who need some help with decision-making, maybe they need help with communication, but there are other parents that will steamroll a PC. And by that, I mean, they will overuse the PC. They will use the PC to perpetuate their own position in the case. They will use the PC to work around the other parent as a way to avoid co-parenting with the other parent. And so there's cases where the parents don't need a PC. They just need to not share legal custody and decision-making. Right. And that's another alternative because really with a PC, we are in that role because the parents, by the court order, share decision-making. And if you've got parents who are so high conflict that they cannot utilize a PC in an effective way to help them make decisions together. There are some cases that are, and I hate to use the word bad enough, but where these issues are significant enough where they just need to not share legal custody. One parent just needs to be able to make the decision or they need some other mechanism to help make decisions together other than a PC. Right. I agree with that. In some cases, the amount of time that it takes for these two people to attempt to reach a decision about anything is detrimental to the child. Nothing gets done. The poor child never gets to play soccer, never gets to play basketball, never gets to go to whatever extracurricular activity they want to go to because if dad suggests it, mom is always going to say no. And if the PC is involved, mom is always going to bring it to the PC then mom is probably going to not like the PC decision. She's then going to have the PC decision reviewed. And this poor child is never going to get to do anything. Well, um, and keeping in mind, too, that this is going to cost this family a fortune. Absolutely. And so even if beyond just the practical result of that, a lot of families, they're already spending tons of money on attorneys. And then you put a PC in there. And if you've got the PC having to decide every single issue for this family, a lot of families simply can't afford that. Right. Well, we are almost out of time. Are there any additional tips that you have for folks who think they may need a PC in their, their custody case? I think we've covered the, the big things, just understanding the role of a PC, understanding the limits of a PC, going into the PC relationship with a positive attitude, but not to be, sometimes people, and, and I understand this, but sometimes people come into the PC relationship and they just kiss up the whole time. I mean, right. I know that sounds silly, but they are so 
even though I'm a neutral person, they are so wanting me to be on their side from the beginning. And they either do that in one of two ways. One, they flatter me in a way that is very, very fake and very humorous, or they want to poison me against the other side from the outset that I don't want to rehash the past, but let me tell you what dad's been doing for the last 10 years. Or let me tell you, I don't want to say anything bad about mom, but did you know she was hospitalized last year? Or they just come at the outset and try to just create this, uh, this forum or create this narrative. And it's just not helpful. And so I tell people from the outset, Um, have a discussion with your attorney about what the PC can and cannot do. Go into the PC relationship with a positive, appropriate attitude, um, but understand the limits of what the PC is doing. I'm not your advocate. I'm a neutral person. There's going to be times where you don't think I like you, and there's going to be times where the other parent doesn't think that I like them. And that's because I'm a neutral, and I'm not here to be your cheerleader. I'm not here to be your attorney. I am here on behalf of the court, and most importantly, on behalf of your children so that they can have a peaceful life and so you guys can stop spending your money on lawyers and stop visiting the judge. Right, and just start parenting your children. That's right. That's right. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this has been a really great discussion, um, and hopefully some folks will have some of their questions about PCs answered. If anyone has additional questions for you, what's the best way for them to reach you? You can always... Contact me by email, and my email is katie, K-A-T-I-E, at wakefamilylawgroup.net. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of A Year and a Day. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at jdavis at divorcestuff.com. As a reminder, while in my role as a lawyer, my job is to give folks legal advice. The purpose of this podcast is not to do that. This podcast is for general informational purposes only, should not be used as legal advice, and is specific to the law in North Carolina. If you have questions before you take any action, you should consult with a lawyer who is licensed in your state.